This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. To coincide with the UN Climate Change Conference, aka COP26, which is happening up in Glasgow this month, we're launching a short spin-off series just on ESG, which is Environmental, Social and Governance Factors. Now, this is a discussion that we're well-versed in by now, as it's been the hot topic within the industry for the past couple of years. But in this mini-series, which we'll release on Thursdays, we're specifically interviewing four or five experts who approach sustainability from a different angle or challenges some conventions within ESG. That being said, we do have to include a very short disclaimer that the opinions and views expressed by our guests are not necessarily representative of the value team or Schroeder's as a whole. Our first guest in this series is the name that you're familiar with. It's Eric Kobayashi-Solomon. So Eric first appeared on the podcast back in May to discuss options with us, but today he is back to talk about another hat that he wears, which is climate change investing. Eric is on the board of a Tel Aviv startup called Albo, which leverages AI and satellite tech to help speed up carbon credit development projects, so it is a topic that's close to his heart. In this episode, Juan and Roberta ask Eric about how investors can be convinced to care about climate change, how industries other than energy, oil and gas need to contribute, and possible transformations that we can take on a local level to encourage not only better environmental practices, but self-sufficiency. Right before we kick into this episode with Eric, I just wanted to find some of the terms that you're going to hear him use. He's going to talk about long short, which is an investment strategy that seeks to take a long position on the underpriced stocks while selling short the overpriced shares. So this is a strategy that helps you minimize your market exposure and still profit from gains in the long position and price declines in your short positions. He's also going to talk about hedge, which you'll know from the phrase hedge your bets. Uh, this is an investment that is made with the intention to reduce the risk of price movements within an asset. They're also going to talk about SPACs, which are very popular in the news as of late. They are special purpose acquisition companies. Um, they're formed to raise money through an IPO or initial public offering to buy another company. It affords a, a different route to a public market for companies uh, rather than your traditional IPO. If you are familiar with Eric from our earlier episodes, then you'll be well-versed in options, but options are financial derivatives that give buyers the right but not the obligation to buy or sell an underlying asset at agreed-upon price and date in the future. And finally, they're going to talk about reinsurers. Reinsurers are companies that provide financial protection to insurance companies. They insure the insurer, essentially, uh, so they can handle risks that are too large for uh, insurance companies. Enjoy. Eric, welcome back to the Fire Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here again. Thank you, Juan. It's a pleasure to be back. Um, maybe very quickly, we've spoken in the past about option investing applied to value investing. But it might be a good idea uh, for you to give us a little bit of an introduction on how you came about um, working and investing and writing about climate tech, climate tech and, and climate change in general. So, in fact, the same thing that brought me to value investing also brought me to climate science. Back in 2006, I was acting as the market risk manager for a long-short equity hedge fund in Princeton. 
And the manager was about 50%, 50% of the portfolio was long oil. So I was trying to hedge that oil exposure. And frankly, it was terrifying for me because commodity hedging commodities is a lot different from hedging equities. And so I started reading everything I could about asset price movement for commodities. And that actually brought me into reading some climate science. And the more I read about this, kind of the more shocked I got. The strange thing is, is I never really, I kept reading about climate science, but I never kind of uh, grafted my avocation on my vocation. So I kept working in the public markets as a public market analyst and, you know, writing about, about options and doing things with options. And I never, never thought to apply that investment or valuation skill to climate science. Uh, and in fact, in a couple of the places I was sitting on a desk, I was talking to a, a well-known hedge fund manager about his uh, real estate property investment in uh, the panhandle of Florida. And I mentioned something about climate change as one catalyst. And people in the room actually laughed, audibly laughed when I mentioned that. This was probably back in 2011, something like that. So um, 2018, Bill Nordhaus from Yale won the, I call it the fake Nobel Prize for economics. Uh, and he's done a lot of work on climate economics. I actually uh, disagree with, with Nordhaus a lot, not that he cares. Um, but uh, suddenly it hit me at that time. I, I was kind of between ventures and, and thinking, you know, what, what do I want to focus on? And I realized that the, the venture community and uh, the, the climate tech ventures were really interesting and really exciting. There was really some cool technical work and also uh, kind of more biological work being done that I was interested in. Awesome. That's super interesting. Thank you, Eric. And just to echo Juan, welcome. Really good to have you back. Super excited to be here with you today as well. Likewise. So maybe if we just jump into our first question. So we really enjoyed reading your Forbes article, um, Science Doesn't Care What Trading Desks Are Saying. I guess our question around that was, well, what, when and why do you think trading desks will, if ever, start to care what science is saying? Yeah, so in fact, I wrote that article quite a long time ago. I think if I remember correctly, it was early 2019 when I wrote it. And, you know, uh, I think that people think of the market or trading desks as monolithic, but of course there's different segments to the market. And I think different parts of the market have already woken up, have already uh, realized that something big is happening. I would say that the biggest transformation has been in the venture space. Um, and I've seen a lot of money going into ventures. In fact, just this morning, uh, a company that I follow announced that it was raising a Series A round, $100 million for a Series A round. That's not shabby. Um, another company, that's that company is Enervenue. They create 
a new form of batteries for grid, grid scale battery storage or energy storage. Uh, another company, I, I can't name them, they still haven't made the announcement yet. Also another series A, $100 million. Also you have companies like um, Bill Gross, the founder of Idealab, has uh, started a company called Heliogen that is actually listing through a SPAC. Uh, it'll be in the next couple of months. And uh, STEM Energy is another one which deals with, with battery storage that is also listed. So I think more and more that kind of transition from awareness in the venture community is going into the public markets. You know, as value investors, of course, we think a lot about catalysts. And we, we know as a value investor that the cash flows are the truth. And that sometimes perception uh, doesn't keep up with the truth, or there may be some behavioral biases that may prevent people from seeing what that truth is. I do think that in terms of the public markets, probably the best chance for a catalyst, I think, is in the bond complex. Um, and bond complex and also uh, insurers and reinsurers because insurers and reinsurers are seeing that the actual costs of climate related natural disasters are really increasing. And so that is starting to affect premiums and those premiums are starting to op uh, are starting to affect the operational kind of dynamics of uh, listed firms. The bond complex as well, you know, a few years ago, we saw huge fires in California. We've also seen uh, floods, terrible heat waves in Europe. In California, a S&P 500 listed company, uh, PG&E, went bankrupt, essentially because of a dynamic that involved climate change. So in terms of the bond complex, PG&E going bankrupt uh, has left a lot of bond investors um, scrambling. I think that there is the possibility for those kind of effects to ripple through the, the bond market, both on the corporate side and also on the government side. There was a huge hurricane that went into the, the Florida panhandle a few years ago I talked with the mayor of a, a town down there a year later, and she told me that in fact, they still hadn't rebuilt at all because they didn't have enough housing for everybody. So most people who had been living there just simply moved away. So what does that do? That, that thins out your tax base and means that whatever municipal bonds that were issued before are now riskier and are gonna start trading at a higher yield. So I think that the, the bond complex and insurance, reinsurance are, are both areas that we may see some movement in initially. Eric, I think that you've written in the past about something that Bill Gates has mentioned as well, which is this issue about the, uh, what he calls the 75% problem. So can you please walk us through what that is and why is it important for everyone to understand what that means? And also in the context of investments, why is this relevant to the investment community? Yeah, so uh, I think Gates's observation was 
was really brilliant that people have the idea that if they just throw up some solar panels and some wind farms and we'll be a-okay. The problem is, is that electric, electrical generation, power generation only accounts for about 25% of the greenhouse gas emissions each year. So that leaves us with 75% of greenhouse gas emissions unaccounted for, even if we're able to, you know, coat the entire globe with uh, solar panels. I think that there is a deeper problem as well. And that is, if you take a look at a pie chart that has, okay, 25% is, um, is energy, is electricity. Uh, another, about 25% is agriculture. About 20% is manufacturing. So I sit at, at a desk all day and I think to myself, well, I'm not a farmer, so I'm not responsible for that 25%. Or, you know, I'm not working in a factory, so I, I don't care about that, that 20%. But in fact, the products that all of us use are the ones that are being manufactured. The food that we're eating is causing these greenhouse gas emissions. And so the real problem is we've developed a civilization. I mean, the, the process of building a civilization is essentially the process of storing and distributing energy. And that's true from 10,000 years ago when we first started storing grains and then distributing those grains. That's the birth of civilization. So we are used to a certain level of um, living, you know, a certain standard of living. And that standard of living is based upon greenhouse gas emissions, these almost magical um, substances, these hydrocarbons uh, that we're spewing out into the atmosphere. So, you know, the one thing that hit me, there's a website where you can go and put in some details about your, your life and see how much share of the planet's resource you're using. And um, I live a modest life. I don't take private jets. I don't even drive a car very much. Um, I, you know, live a pretty simple life. If everyone on this planet lived the same simple life, simple, modest life that I do, we would need 4.1 planets to supply everyone with my standard of living. So this is just untenable. And the really untenable part is these wonderful substances that we're using that are making our life so great are also the same substances that are destroying the Earth's capacity to support our lives, the, the lives that we know. That, that's really interesting. I think that one of the uh, data points that you have given me in the past when we've discussed this is that point that you made about your new phone, how much it weighs. Right. Um, can, you, can you relate to that, please? The, the carbon intensity that is embedded in, yeah. in, in, your, in your very nice, cool phone. Yeah. So, in fact, my, my wife was uh, just looking at um, the product announcement of uh, a certain Cupertino-based uh, telephone maker. And 
was getting very excited about the possibility of, of getting one of their new, new phones. And of course, when the company describes their phones, they talk about how many ounces it weighs, or I, I don't know in, in Europe if they talk about grams, but um, the fact is, is that the carbon emitted through the production of one of these phones, the mass of that, those carb, that carbon waste is about 56 kilograms, about 121 pounds. And every time I access an internet server, that mass increases because those servers are using energy to download information onto my phone. And so if we were thinking about kind of our impact on the earth in those terms, what is the, what is the, the weight of our phones, not our actual physical weight, but the weight of everything that goes to produce it, I think we would have a different perspective. Now, your, your second, the second part of your question is the investment implications. The fact is, is that we can't, like my best investing idea is not to buy a bunch of cases of tuna fish and shotgun shells and go uh, live in a, a cave in New Zealand. Um, we have to be able to uh, support our standard of living to increase the standard of living of people in developing countries and also not destroy our biosphere. And what that means is completely rethinking the paradigms on which we produce these things. And one of the companies that I just have recently been talking to and I'm writing a series about is a company originally from New Zealand but is now headquartered near me in Skokie, Illinois called Lanzatech. And they're a, a chemical company, a manufacturer of, of chemicals. So when you think of a, a chemical company, you probably think of a huge refinery and you know dirty smoke, a lot of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, about 6% of uh, greenhouse gas emissions each year are coming from the chemical industry, even without considering the mining that goes into pulling the raw materials out. What Lanzatech has developed is a technology where they've genetically modified anaerobic bacteria so they can uh, attach a reactor with this, these anaerobic bacteria to a steel manufacturing facility. The steel manufacturing facility gives off carbon monoxide and hydrogen the anaerobic bacteria actually eat that and metabolize ethanol and other uh, chemicals that we can use to make plastics or lycra for yoga pants or even jet fuel. It's completely turning on its head the idea of how chemical manufacturing should work. And that's what I mean by a paradigm shift. And I think that's where the, the real opportunity for investment is and why I'm so excited about this as an uh, area of investment. That's quite interesting. One of the things that um, over the course of the last couple of years, the, the attention of the market has been very much on the energy companies and the oil and gas companies. And it seems like they became a little bit like the evil in the, in the story. But what you're saying is that they are only a, a fraction of the problem. And actually many companies that are seen as 
or many industries that are that don't have the perception or are not perceived to be part of the problem, they are very much part of the problem. So the next question that I would have is, what should be the role that oil and gas companies should play in the whole um, climate change debate that is taking place at the moment? Yeah, so I think I've written a lot about oil and gas companies and ventures involving oil and gas companies. Um, a company that I've covered for a couple of years called Carbon Engineering out of Squamish, British Columbia in Canada has developed a way to, to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and convert it into um, e either into fuel or in fact to sequester that carbon permanently underground. And their, uh, their partners include some of these big oil and gas companies. And if you talk to, if you talk to like the hardcore greenies, they hate this idea of direct air capture of DAC. They, in fact, it's almost, it's almost kind of a uh, an idea of religious retribution. So these oil and gas companies have damaged our atmosphere. So we are just praying for the the giant and heavy wheel of karma to crush them in the future. The fact is though, that these companies know a lot about geology. They know a lot about how hydrocarbons are stored. And in fact, the, the more forward thinking ones, and I'm, I'm thinking especially of uh, Occidental Petroleum, o Oxy Low Carbon Ventures is, is one company. It's a, a venture branch of, uh, Occidental Petroleum, doing some really very interesting things about recycling carbon. Just like what I'd mentioned before about Lanzatech, carbon and hydrocarbons are phenomenally handy things. They enable us to have plastics, to have um, all the things. You can't go through a day without touching like synthetic hydrocarbon made materials. I think the the space for oil and gas companies are figuring out how to store excess carbon. That's one. And then two, how to recycle the carbon that we've got already. That carbon is really useful. How do we, how do we use that above ground carbon as a resource to do what we need to do, whether that's taking a, a plane or making yoga pads. That's really interesting. Um, I, I, Read your day or stumble upon something on Twitter that I, I, I think that it was meant as a joke, but uh, it probably had a lot of reality behind it, which was someone was making the point that if all of the activists in the 70s would have not fought very hard to clamp down on nuclear, the carbon issue would not be as high as it is today. And so my next question is, there's a lot of focus attention and a lot of people talking about solar and wind but it seems like nuclear is a better solution. Um, do you have any views on that? And, and why is there no more push to increase install capacity on nuclear? So there's so much I could say about this. We could probably talk for an hour about this. I think that one thing is a huge behavioral bias um, that humans have. We, when you say the word nuclear, the first thing that jumps to my mind, to everybody's mind, is a mushroom cloud, or is the, 
you know, the top blowing off of the Fukushima reactor back in 2011. It's something quick and devastating. The fact is, is that millions of people worldwide die every year because of small part particles in the air, air pollution. Air pollution caused by burning fossil fuels to generate energy, to make chemicals and et cetera. We, there's nothing flashy, there's no mushroom clouds, there's nobody at CNN covering that or flying over in a helicopter. It's just happening year after year. And we saw this in the, the COVID outbreak as well, that in fact, uh, communities that had relatively higher levels of um, atmospheric pollution did relatively worse in terms of uh, the response to COVID simply because there's an underlying weakness in kind of the pulmonary systems because of the pollution. So I think some of the pushback against nuclear is that kind of behavioral thing. I think there's also, and this is, we may not want to get into this path too much, but there is, there are incumbents for each of those industries and there's political, um, you know, politicians have made a career um, backing or opposing each of those industries. And so that causes problems. The problem of incumbency is really a difficult one in capitalism that, you know, once we have an established wealth generating entity, that entity is going to try to exert political force to allow their cash flows to keep going. And so tends to uh, suppress newcomers into the field. I see this uh, very clearly. The big secret is, and I don't want to, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but if you gave me a choice of solar power, wind power or nuclear power, I would say none of them will work. And here's why. The way these are being implemented right now are along an industrial revolution model. An industrial revolution model says, let's centralize production. Let's transport the widget, the raw materials we need. We produce widgets, whether those widgets are electrons or sweaters or whatever, and then we send them out on long supply chains. If we covered Arizona in solar panels, if we covered the North Sea in, uh, in turbines, the raw materials that are going into these renewable energy resources are going to push the temperature, they're going to release enough carbon to push the temperature up uh, above that two degrees centigrade limit. Same thing for nuclear. Nuclear plants use a lot of cement. The cement produces a lot of greenhouse gases. They use a lot of steel, same thing. I think that what we need now is a paradigm shift. And I've been doing a lot of work lately looking at uh, distributed modes of uh, grid provisioning. 
So what that is, is local provisioning of power, local generation of power using, um, for instance, small rooftop units paired with batteries, uh, having small communities essentially generating their own power. There you don't have all the problems of the long transmission lines, which has been one of the real sticking points. And also there's a, a much less kind of a material need to, to solidify and, and harden these facilities. I think that kind of a paradigm shift is what we need to be thinking about, that continuing, we've had a really good run uh, 150 years, 200 years of a really good run where we've figured out how to, to use steam power uh, to dig up coal and then use steam power to ship that coal someplace else, then use oil power, then use natural gas. We've had a good run, but now we need to figure out another way of doing that. Yeah, I totally agree. So, Last question from us, Eric, please. So it's a bit of a fun one, but if you could persuade every investor that listens to this um, to add one extra step into their investment process, what would it be? All right. So I was thinking about this question, and honestly, there is no answer to this question. I think the essential framework for any investor is let's take what's happening right now and extrapolate into the future. And the problem is, is I believe that we really are at a, a regime shift, at a, a complete change in the operating rules of society. And this is just very hard to factor into an investment decision. So, I would encourage people to read history. One, one book that I really like is Jared Diamond's book, Collapse. And this actually looks at, at three, um, three civilizations that were under stress and failed, and three civilizations that were under stress and succeeded. And what's the difference between those? So reading a little bit of history and then also reading a little bit of science and understanding what is happening right now. And I think the last part, and sorry, I'm kind of a valuation nerd, but if you take a look at, and I don't even know what Walmart's forward PE ratio is right now, it's something like 20 times. So if it is 20X, the forward PE ratio, what that means is, is that only 5% of Walmart's value is wrapped up in the next year's earnings. The whole rest of that is perpetuity value. And so if you start thinking about what happens in a resource constrained world, if you start thinking about what happens when border adjustment taxes go into place, if you start thinking about what happens when we have really serious environmental damage that means uh, companies are needing to spend a lot more to harden their facilities 
or to recover from disasters, you'll see that that perpetuity, that growth of that perpetuity uh, really falls and maybe even goes negative. And what does that do to stock prices? So this really gets back to the first question, right? What's the catalyst? At some point, people are gonna see, oh, wait a second, this is really affecting cash flows for real. Maybe we should pay attention. That's fantastic, Eric. Thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure to have you here back on the Value Perspective podcast. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me on.